Good morning, I'm Stephanie Four, and I co-lead a small group with my husband here. <clears throat> We're gonna read from 2 Timothy chapter one, starting in verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steph. Good morning. This is a baseball. I bring this out for a couple of reasons. One is I think for Ohio football fans, you want to forget about football for a moment. <laughs> it's not been a good winter for Ohio football fans. But also, in the middle of winter, amidst the swirling snow and frigid air, I like to think about baseball. Right? Spring training, spring training is just, I'll just leave this here so you can keep thinking about warmth. <laughs> spring training is just around the corner. And, you know, throwing a baseball, throwing a baseball really is a thing of art, if you didn't know that, as actually hitting a baseball is as well. And particularly the thing about throwing a baseball is that you cannot grip on, grip it too tightly, nor can you grip it too loosely. This is true of a lot of things in sports. If you hold on to this baseball too tightly, you're going to slow down the velocity and you're going to lose control of it. And the key in throwing a baseball is, as well as many other things, is in terms of a grip is to hold it tight enough but loose enough so that it flows out of your hand and has the maximum velocity. Now, people that play sports think about this as a helpful metaphor for other areas of life. For example, if you hold on to a relationship too tightly in a controlling manner, or if you hold too tightly onto expectations about how a work project will turn out, or if you hold too tightly to what your kids will become, if you hold too tightly, right, you can lose the very thing that means so much to you. 
And it sort of begs the question, is there anything in life that we should hold on to tightly? And the answer is yes. There is, and it's in our passage today with which Steph read. And we should hold on tightly and with a firm grasp. Let's look again at verse 14. And I want to read it from the Amplified Version. Paul wrote to Timothy, Guard with greatest care and keep unchanged the treasure, that precious truth, which has been entrusted to you, that is the good news about salvation through personal faith in Christ Jesus, through the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now this word guard, one of its definitions is to hold on to tightly. Don't let go of it. And the command here that follows is to entrust it to others, the very focal point of our series. But it makes one wonder, the gospel, isn't this so basic? Isn't it Christianity 101? How could we lose it? Why do we need to talk about something so obvious, something so simple? Because the simple gospel message in the hands of human beings operating more on human wisdom than the power of the Spirit quickly dilute, add to, or compromise the gospel. Consider the testimony of others. Author Jerry Bridges. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of human history, it is the one essential message in all of history. Sounds a little bit like Vince Lombardi there, doesn't it, about when football and winning. But he goes on and says, yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living in it. John Stott wrote, all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. Even if we understand the gospel, there is also the challenge of the gospel remaining only head knowledge and not applying it to our hearts. Speaking of the gospel's relationship to our justification by faith, Richard Lovelace wrote this bombshell. He wrote that only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension or an understanding of God's holiness and the extent and guilt of their sin that they consciously see little need for justification, although below the surface of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. I agree with this statement. And, and this is why going back to the basics of the gospel from time to time is vital. So this morning, I'd like to look at three questions from our text to help us know how to hold tightly onto the gospel. Number one, what is the gospel? Number two, what threatens the gospel? 
And number three, how do I lead a gospel-centered life? We pray with me for a moment as we invite the Spirit to come and to speak and to address the needs of our heart. Father, you do know the need of every heart that's here this morning. Every soul this morning here are watching online. And we ask you, Father, to address those needs deep inside of us. Thank you for the power of this message and the power of the reality of who Jesus is. And as we sang earlier, thank you, Father, that you raised him from the dead and he is alive. And he's made available today to us through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would remain sensitive to him throughout our experience this morning. Father, help us to fix our eyes and our hearts and an attention <clears throat> to being a learner this morning and to growing in your grace and our understanding. You have gifts this morning you long to give to us. May we be receptive. Amen. 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 Okay, so let's go to that first question. What is the gospel? The very best summary of the gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. And the summary there, found in verse 3, is akin to a creed or a statement of faith. It may have been used as liturgy in the early church. Let's read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul wrote, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, and if you, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? It is the historic act of Jesus dying, being buried, and resurrecting. There are tremendous implications of the gospel, but this act of history is its essence and foundation. We enter into the gospel through faith. Now, relative to our passage today, what does Paul emphasize about the gospel? Well, if you look there in the first chapter, you'll see that Paul takes two things and he co-joins them, God's purpose and God's grace. The first thing he does is he emphasizes God's divine purposes in saving us. And that purpose was conceived before time began. In eternity, God formed a plan to bring about your salvation through Jesus. Now, this echoes similar things that Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 8, if you are familiar with those chapters. That purpose came to you 
through the supernatural means of a call. Now, what is that? Well, it isn't something happening through your cell phone. No, he speaks to your inner person through the Holy Spirit. Now, that call can come in specific words. Most report it comes in an impression, an inner assurance, a sense of divine truth coming into focus. How do we have the capacity to hear that call? This is really an important question. Because in our natural self without Christ, we are spiritually dead and unable to respond to God. God has to first make us alive to regenerate us so we can hear his voice and respond. Now, in the medical realm, we are told that the only organ that can regenerate is the liver. In the spiritual realm, God regenerates our heart to make it capable of responding to this divine call. And notice something else about this divine call in verse 9. In the same moment that God calls us to salvation, he also calls us to holiness. Salvation provides us forgiveness and eternal life with Jesus. Holiness means that we are set apart for a special purpose. Salvation thus gives you and me a new identity and makes us members of a new kingdom. In becoming Christians, we are called to be like Jesus. These are not two calls, one to salvation and one to discipleship. But one call, we are called to follow Jesus both as Savior and as King. So Paul emphasizes purpose. He conjoins that purpose with grace. This is the second theme that he emphasizes again in verse 9. We were given this grace not because of anything we have done. We do not earn it. We do not merit this grace or do anything to deserve it. It is God's favor lavished on us because of who he is and because of his purposes hatched in eternity. And to double down on this concept of grace, Paul says in the following verse that this grace was given us before time began, long before human beings could do anything to achieve it or to establish their worthiness Paul, our God, shows and reveals his grace. His purposes and his grace were stirring in the same pot. Now that purpose and grace ultimately meant Jesus coming to earth, verse 11, and defeating death through his own. And in that, Jesus revealed the glory of immortality in a way previously unknown. What we knew about eternity before the coming of Jesus was like the murky half-light of dusk just before dawn. And when Christ comes, it's the coming of dawn. It's the rising of the sun in our understanding of eternity and immortality. 
What this reveals is that grace is at the very heart of the gospel. It is received through divine call. You did not seek it. It sought you. You did not find it. It found you. And even the faith through which you came to know Jesus was a gift of God. These gospel truths we are called to hold on to tightly. Let's move to our second question. What threatens the gospel? What threatens it? There are so many places, friends, that we could go with this question. There are many competing theologies or gospels that move by various degrees from the simple statement that we read in 1 Corinthians 15. And it can be insidious because these gospels often take a fruit of Christianity or take a fruit of Christian belief and make that the main thing. Let me take a few minutes here and explain. Let me give you one example. One example of this is called liberation theology. If you've not heard about, of that, it's, you can research it on your own, but it was influ is influenced heavily by Marxism. It takes an aspect of Jesus' call in our lives to serve the poor, to identify with the oppressed, and makes it the pivotal creed of our faith upon which all else hangs. Eliminating poverty becomes the dominant narrative to such a degree that it actually transforms the meaning of individual sin and salvation. It ultimately seeks heaven realized now on earth. This is but one example, and yet liberation theology is indicative of a natural human tendency. It may not be your temptation, but listen carefully to what one author said about the inclination of our hearts to twist the gospel's meaning. He wrote this. Liberation theology is part of an unfortunate pattern where it's tempting to take some fruit of Christianity and make it the central point. Health and wealth peddlers of the prosperity gospel often take the material benefits of following Jesus and make them into the main point of faith. People who are grateful that elements of Christianity have influenced their country positively can mistakenly see their country's well-being as the main focal point of their faith. People find themselves captivated by a political ideology, so they bring in a caricature of the Christian faith to give their ideology some spiritual legitimization. In the same way, liberation theology, theology takes Marxist-style liberation as the point of Christianity. Daniel McCoy wrote that. Now, I have said similar things to this in past messages. The gospel does have implications socially, economically, and politically. And those can be good things. 
And yet, what has happened to some very good gospel-centered churches and denominations? What has happened is that over a generation or two, the good fruit of the gospel is turned into the main thing. And the believing in the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the making of new disciples around the gospel gets lost in the shuffle. This can happen to any church. Now, what we're talking about here this morning, just so that you really grasp and understand what I'm saying, what we are talking about here this morning is focus and priority. This is not an either-or proposition. Some of you, a number of you, invest your ministry sweat, blood, and tears around a social implication of the gospel. And when that kind of ministry is set in the context of a gospel-focused church and community, that can be a very good thing. These are some examples that I hope that you see can become threats to the gospel. Now, I want to spend a few more moments on this question. It's so critical. Is there a threat to the gospel that emerges from our passage this morning? And I think there is, in a broad sense. In a broad sense, a threat to the gospel is whatever undercuts the reality of grace. And one of the things that undercuts grace is when we don't recognize the gravity of our sin. Recall the Lovelace quote. Because we don't really factor understand the depth of our sinfulness, so we don't appreciate the need for justifying faith. Even as believers, we find ourselves making quiet bargains with God on the hope that our performance will be enough. Now, condemnation here is not my goal, but rather a fresh appreciation of the depths of God's grace the kind of thing that can sweep you off your feet and bring fresh joy, pour fresh joy into your heart. And in actuality, the best place to tell the hard truths about ourselves is in the context of applying God's grace. One of the culture's gospels that undercuts grace is called the therapy, what some have called, the therapeutic gospel. And this is one that I think over a long time has had a subtle effect on me. I'm not just pointing fingers this morning here at others. And I think this has had an extremely negative impact on American churches in our generation. Now, I don't like the term therapeutic gospel especially if you take from that that we are anti-counseling or anti-therapy because we are not. We are pro-counseling, though we do strongly encourage the right kind of counselor. But author Trevin Wax, 
in his book called Counterfeit Gospels, he tried to define the therapeutic gospel with three categories, its story, its announcement, and its vision of community. Let's look at what he wrote. The story of the therapeutic gospel is that the fall, the fall of humanity, is seen as the failure of humans to reach our potential. Sin is primarily about us because it robs us of our sense of fullness. The announcement of the therapeutic gospel is that Christ's death proves our inherent worth as human beings and gives us power to reach our full potential. And finally, the community envisioned by the therapeutic gospel is that the church is here to help us in our quest for personal happiness and vocational fulfillment. Now, what is this? What is this? It's a really subtle twist in why it can be so hard to detect. You see, this is a me-centered gospel as opposed to a God-centered story. It turns a story of God into a mechanism by which you and me can reach Maslow's top of the pyramid, self-actualization. It leans on our human potential rather than declaring, hey, we're all trophies of God's grace. In the therapeutic gospel, Paul could never say, everything I do, all that I am, is by the grace of God. The Westminster Catechism, learned by multitudes of Christians before our therapeutic age, began with the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, therape the therapeutic gospel begins with, how can God glorify man? Can you see this? Can you see it? And can you see how it undercuts grace? Because we don't need it. You see, grace becomes the remedy in the awareness of our sinfulness. Right? Okay, but let's go a little deeper here. Let's go a little deeper on this. What is our sinfulness? Because I'm not sure that we all really understand this. What is our sinfulness? We tend to see our sinfulness as deficiencies, a personal weakness, individual isolated acts. In an, in an exclusive application of the therapeutic gospel, we might see our sins as the result of poor self-esteem or the result of not being loved sufficiently. And while certainly the environment impacts us, it does not remove personal responsibility. And if this is the extent of how we assess our sinfulness, we are truly missing the biblical picture. Because the Bible describes our sin not so much as a single act, but rather a nature, a condition, a spiritual illness that impacts everything we do, and even our deeds that we deem to be our best deeds, sin, 
impacts. One person wrote, it's as if we take the garbage of our lives and spill it onto a perfect white snowy landscape representing the purity of who God is. Sin is alienation from God. Sin is a disruption of our relationship with him. Again, just to keep drilling on this a little more, let's look at several passages that describe this. Romans 5, 9, and 10. Paul wrote, since we have now been justified, are declared righteous by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, did you catch that? If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now again, it's worth noting that we see our sin best when we set it alongside of grace. But this does not describe us in our natural condition as honest, naive seekers of the truth with good hearts. But rather, it describes us as enemies of God. Meaning that the relationship with him is so broken that we actively work against his involvement in our lives and in the world. Let's look at a second one, Romans 8, 5 through 7. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now, important distinction here, the flesh here is not your physical body. It is rather the mind. It is the will. It is the core self. The flesh here is our natural self without Christ. And in this condition, we are not neutral or passive towards God, but we are actively hostile. Trust has been so broken. There is such a degree of alienation in our relationship with God that we are hostile to him. Without intervening grace, we are alienated from God, and we want desperately to keep it that way. One more, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, Paul writing to the Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. This reinforces a point that I made earlier. Before grace stepped in, we were spiritually dead, incapable of respond, respond, responding to God, and we were held captive. We were slaves to a power 
greater than ourselves that we could not break out of based on our own human exertion or will. A power that we could not escape in our own strength. The power of sin and the power of the evil one. We live to consume and gratify self, yet even those acts were not done as a neutral actor. They are the inevitable outlet to a nature in conflict with God. This quote from C.S. Lewis sums up our nature without Christ. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Now, if all of this sounds so like otherworldly and foreign to you, as if it could never apply to me or never apply to you, it could be that you have no concept of how far you or how far humanity has fallen. It's as if you live in a desert valley amongst withered shrubs, bone-dry steep stream beds, and stagnant polluted air, and you are not even aware, you have no recollection that your ancestors once lived high in the mountains where everything was green, where everything in the plant world flourished, and every breath of the pure, clean air brought nothing but delight. You have no conception of what it could be. You have no conception of what your life could be. Not ever knowing reality from God's perspective. Friends, this is not just a missed opportunity. This is a catastrophe. Theologian Fleming Rutledge captured this in a compelling way. She wrote, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be uh, helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the reign of greed, cruelty, rapacity, which means to take something not, that's not your own, and violence throughout the world. In view of God's nature, it would be impossible that this state of affairs would be allowed to continue forever. Friends, when we tell the truth about ourselves, and when we agree with Scripture's diagnosis of our desperate situation, we come to that place where we recognize there are no means of self-salvation, no success in quiet bargaining, and no true peace with God until we lay down our arms and surrender. And when we do arrive at that point, then we can begin to understand and recognize how desperate our need for God's grace is and God's justification alone. 
You see, the therapeutic gospel sees sin as a deficiency that we can overcome through self-improvement or a healthier self-esteem. It thus misdiagnoses or misdiagnoses our true self, and in so doing, it undercuts the power of grace. The irony is that, as Lovelace suggests, when that happens, underneath the surface, we still remain guilt-ridden and insecure. The power of realizing grace, the power of recognizing our justifying faith can begin to set you truly free from all of that and bring into your mind and in your heart a peace that you may have never experienced before, even as a believer. Because you can be a believer and not be fully grasping, appropriating, understanding the justifying work that God has done in your life. You recognize that the mission and the goal and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is here to shed abroad the love of God in your hearts. That's his ministry, is to pour the, his love into your hearts. And while we may still ever be vulnerable to the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of feelings, or circumstantial happiness, there are rock-solid things about who we are and what we have that provide an ongoing, unblocked, never-ending stream of joy into our lives if we will trust and believe the appropriating work of grace that Christ has done. Let's go to that last question. How do I lead a gospel-centered life? Me as an individual... We've talked here some about the church. And, and before I make this move, let me just say, next generation, next generation of leaders, next generation of members, next generation of pastors and elders, next generation of life group leaders, next generation of deacons, next generation of, of staff, hold on to this. Hold on tightly to this, to the work, the power, the remedy of God's grace. But please remember to do so. You cannot undersell. You cannot discount. You cannot underappreciate. You cannot be afraid to say, we are sinful. We are sinful. Fleming Rutledge also in her book, in a chapter called The Gravity of Sin, she says, I'm always amazed to hear people sing Amazing Grace. It's still, you know, one of the most well-sung, well-known, popular songs in our culture. And yet the words of Amazing Grace say what? Saved what? Saved a wretch like me. And, 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 and that word maybe brings more to home what I'm trying to say. Until we come to that place where we realize without intervening grace in our lives, we're wretches. We're self-oriented. We live for self-gratification. We might be religious. 
If you were a quote unquote good person, you have to factor in a little bit of your environment and your nurture and the way you were raised. There may be an intervening grace there. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves. It is amazing grace. And it's only amazing. It's only amazing because we are wretched without Jesus intervening. This next generation, I encourage you to preach and proclaim and hold on to tightly. Anything else will undercut the power and the remedy of grace. Let's look at these final questions. How can I lead individually a gospel-centered life? Number one, make the gospel a lifelong study. There is always so much more we can learn about the gospel. We never graduate from it. And we never, it's as if, as if we never need to return to it. The gospel, as we've often said, it's a beautiful diamond. And we can hold it up to the light and twist it and see new dimensions of God's boundless love and God's boundless grace. Make the gospel a lifelong study. David Pryor wrote, we never move on from the cross only into a more profound understanding of the cross. Secondly, orient yourself to the gospel every day. Recognize that in spending daily time with the Father, you are first and fundamentally remembering who you are and what you have. The Lord's Prayer, the model for our prayer, begins with what words? Our Father who lives in heaven. We begin by recognizing who he is and we understand ourselves in recognition and in proximity to who he is. He is our father and we are his sons and daughters. We begin our time with him by remembering who we are. And I do hope that spending daily time with the father is a practice of yours. It is a core value, has always been a core value of this church. It is taking responsibility for your spiritual growth. But every day, orient yourself towards your identity. Through the gospel, you are now in Christ, a phrase that is used over 160 times in the New Testament. In Christ means you have spiritual union with Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes the life, the teaching, the resources of Jesus available to you. Now the gospel has done four things that you will be well served to remember every day. Number one, you've been justified by faith. Romans 5.1. Number two, you have been freed from the power of sin. You might not believe it. It might not be your experience, but it is the power available to you. You are freed from the power of sin. Romans 6, 6, 3, you are never alone. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. He will never leave you. And number four, you have authority and power over the demonic realm. This is an aspect of the gospel, Christus, victor, Christ, the victor, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. 
Richard Lovelace said this about this daily orientation. He wrote that few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. And of course, Luther's platform was belief in justification through faith and not works righteousness. Here's what that means. It means believing you are accepted. It means looking not inside my performance, but it means looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien. There's, there's nothing in me that's part of it. Christ's righteousness is wholly alien. And I'm accepting it as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in the quality of trust, which will pr produce increasing sanctification or change or holiness as faith is active in love and gratitude. Friends, how would your life change if you oriented, oriented the trajectory and arc of your day each day around those four truths? This is how you can lead a gospel-focused, a gospel-centered life. Last point, participate in sharing the gospel. Finally, we learn to hold on tightly to the gospel, appreciate its beauty, love it more by sharing it. By sharing it. To this end, I want to encourage you today to take a seminar that we're offering called The Art of Evangelism. It'll be on Saturday, uh, March 23rd. And I am praying, we're praying for a big church turnout. And this seminar will focus on helping you share the gospel at work, class, in the gym, or in your neighborhood. And even now, I encourage you, begin to pray and think about who you can invite to our Easter service. I'm going to give an evangelistic message on that morning. You know, for Christmas Eve services, Louise and I invited eight or nine of our friends and people that we had met recently to our Christmas Eve service, and we prayed. And indeed, a few of them came. For Easter, you can do that. You can invite someone. We can all do that. We can partner together in the gospel. Would you go ahead and stand, please? And I'm going to ask the band to work their way down here. And uh, Stu, if you could put 1 Corinthians 15 back on the screen. I would like us to read, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of scholars believe that verse 3, let's see, next slide there if we could, Stu. Yeah. A lot of scholars believe that this was a, 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 like a statement of faith, a creed, something that Christians in the first century church, still very young, would, when they gathered together in catacombs or places where they met, they would say this statement together. They, they, they would communicate it uh, to the Lord and as well, as well to one another. And, you know, Almost all scholars, uh, Christian and even non-Christian, accept 
The tradition of 1 Corinthians is one of the most well-documented New Testament books that we have. This was written around 56, 57, 58 AD, long before others could come in, as skeptics say, and corrupted the message. This was one of the earliest messages of the ancient church. Will you read it together with me as I lead? For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Amen.